KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Implicit bias in the media. It's an issue, notably when it comes to how black and white people are often portrayed when it comes to crime stories. And we saw some of this in the way the Buffalo mass shooter was covered. We wanted to talk about this, so we caught up with Timothy Welbeck. He is the director of the Center for Anti-Racism Research at Temple University, also a civil rights attorney. So to start, the topic we're going to talk today about the differences oftentimes of how white and black people are depicted in the media specifically maybe with crime stories when we talk about how racism is kind of baked into the american cake this is really one of the ways right kind of at the top of the list no i completely agree in that one of the ways that we often find the insidious manifestations of racism in our society is how things that are portrayed as objective or neutral oftentimes have significant bias and play into age old stereotypes, particularly around criminality, violence and the like. And the, the one of the reasons I wanted to have this discussion was someone pointed out on Twitter uh, the differences with how the Associated Press, the major wired news service, referred to Mike Brown, who was murdered in Ferguson as an 18 year old man. But the Buffalo shooter who killed 10 people who was a white person was uh, looked at as an 18 year old teenager and it's subtle and it's a small thing. And I'm not trying to say the AP is racist and we're talking about two different things, but you can't miss how one on one side, it's, it seems like it's aim is to soften. And on the other side, the aim is to harden. That's an excellent example of exactly what we're talking about, particularly when we're looking at who deserves a sympathetic framing, who is perceived as a child, and then who receives the association of childlike innocence. Um, To that degree, I wrote an article for the Huffington Post in 2016 juxtaposing how Tamir Rice was portrayed particularly in the press conference that Timothy McGinty held when he was announcing that his office would not bring charges against Timothy Lohman and Frank Garnbat, and juxtapose that against the media coverage of Ethan Couch, who was often referred to as the affluenza team. Tamir Rice, if you may remember, was a 12-year-old playing with a toy gun in a park in Cleveland, and someone called the police and said, there's a guy playing with a gun in the park, it's probably a kid with a toy, and police were dispatched. And those police who responded happened to be Timothy Lohman and Frank Garnback. They opened fire on Tamir Rice within 7.92 seconds of pulling onto the scene where he was. And Timothy McGinty went on to talk about how they believed that Tamir Rice was an adult and he was, and they believed that he had a real gun. And that's why they felt like they had to do what they had to do. And he talked about how Tamir was big for his size and he wore adult clothing and things like that. Ethan Couch is still referred to as the influenza teen, even though he's in his mid-20s. When he was a teenager, he was drinking and he had a blood alcohol level that was three times the legal limit, ended up in a car crash where he killed a number of people and maimed several others. And in the trial, his defense team brought forward an expert. That expert was a psychologist named G. Dick Miller. And G. Dick Miller basically was saying that Ethan Couch 
was suffering from a condition he called influenza and talked about how he was coddled so much as a child that he couldn't possibly be held accountable for his decisions. And so that's a very specific example, but I particularly I particularly mentioned those in my article because the announcements came the same day. Ethan Couch actually ended up fleeing the country trying to hide from some other uh, related charges. And the day that they found him happened to be the day that Timothy McGinty held his press conference. And so looking at Tamir Rice, who was an actual child playing with an actual toy in a park, was looked at as an adult who was deemed to be worthy of an aggressive response. And Ethan Couch is still referred to as a teen, even though he's in his mid-20s. And when he was trying to evade law enforcement, dyed his hair, grew a goatee, and fled the country with his mother. And so that's an example of how these things play out often. Uh, Another example people often um, point out, too, is when Michael Brown was killed by Darren Wilson in Ferguson, the New York Times wrote an article and the headline said to, to the effect that Michael Brown was no angel. And it was a way of framing some of the, the trouble that he had gotten into prior to his interactions um, with law enforcement. But the same publication referred to Timothy McVeigh as brilliant but troubled. And so, again, it's a similar juxtaposition that we see in terms of one, I guess, group of subjects receives favorable coverage and others receive more troubling coverage. How much of this do you think is a lot of places kind of take what the police tell them verbatim and there's not maybe a critical look at it in the moment? And a lot of times kind of the parameters are set up at first and everyone kind of reacts from there. And, and, once again, I'm not saying all police are racist, but we've seen a lot of examples where the initial report of what the police said doesn't match what, you know, eventually we learned really happened. Yes, that, that that's a great point. And I think your question even gets to the broader point of how a lot of this reporting isn't necessarily malicious in its intent initially, but it's, it's looking at how some of the stereotypes and biases are baked, like you said, into the fabric of our society. And to your point about police reporting, I think that's absolutely one of the ways that this framing happens initially and that oftentimes many press reports about police activity are taking the police's words verbatim and using that as a viable source of information. And as you mentioned, we often have seen in the era of videotapes and body cameras and cell phone footage and things like that that oftentimes these official stories from police officers don't match what actually transpired when we compare it against the the actual footage itself. How much of this do you think, we're, we're seeing a lot more diversity in journalism, but it's way too late and we're still not where we should be. But how much of this do you think, once again, this isn't people going out of their way or trying to be racist, but they can almost, if you're white or a white parent, you can almost see yourself or see someone you care about in a white person who's depicted in a crime story or talked about in a crime story. And you almost reflexively try to to soften because it's just what you know and who you know. I think that's exactly what's happening. And that, again, 
the thing that often happens is that we come into these scenarios believing in the myth of objectivity. People are creatures of bias and prejudice. And in part, that's how we see the world and interact in the world and things like that. Sometimes our biases and prejudices are innocuous and other times they have more troubling implications. But I think that your question frames it well in that many of the journalists who are offering these sympathetic portrayals of of white criminals or mass shooters and things like that often are seeing themselves or seeing people that they may know and how this person could be troubled and need some help or this person was mentally ill or as we've heard sometimes the police have even said this person had a bad day talking about um, the mass shooter I believe uh, in Atlanta a year before last and even to that point, if you look at how Peyton um, Gendron, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, the coverage around him is falling along similar patterns. The um, the um, Daily Mail in the UK published a story about him and the pictures that they used are holiday pictures of him sitting around a Christmas tree with his with his family and matching pajamas to show another picture of him with his mother. And then the other picture they show is the AR-15 that he used in the actual shooting, but they actually blurred out the messages that he wrote across um, his his weapon. And so, again, he he could not have asked for more favorable coverage with that with that portrayal in the in the picture selection, particularly at when at that point a mugshot of him was available for usage, and so. For some of these journalists, I think it's a reflex in that they want to humanize the subject and maybe show the, I guess, the disastrous trajectory of someone who falls along these lines. But then I think in other instances, it's some of these implicit biases coming to surface as it relates to the coverage of various subjects. Do you think things are getting better overall. I mean, we've just used a couple of examples from the last couple of weeks. So this is obviously still a big problem, but the fact that we're having discussions like this, there are a lot of people proactively trying to dig into this. Do you see progress being made? I see some progress being made in that we have more outlets that are attempting to cover various news stories more fairly there are conversations like this that are happening across various platforms as well. But generally speaking, we have an enormous issue in front of us and that still the overwhelming majority of coverage often retreats to some of these practices. And like you said, we're using various, um, we're using various examples even from this past week. And so there's still much work to be done, but there are genuine efforts towards that work that are happening in the moment. To that point, what are some ways that people can do better? You know, journalists on the front line that are covering this thing that are trying to do the right thing. Once again, I don't want to you know, I mean, there are obviously outlets with an agenda that are, you know, framing things the way they want to frame it. Dog whistles or dog bullhorns a lot of times. But I mean, people that are trying to do right by people and present things objectively. What are some ways they can take a second to think and maybe run through a checklist to do a better job? That's a great question. So I think one of the first ways is to know that they're coming into every situation with their own personal experiences, worldview, bias, and prejudice, and look for potential blind spots. 
I think another way that they could try to get it right, so to speak, is to be attentive to other perspectives and voices as it relates to this particular subject matter, particularly those who might have a vantage point more clearly in places where a given journalist might have a blind spot. Additionally, too, if they were reporting on something that involves the police, I would encourage them to vigorously fact check before presenting the police narrative as actual fact, because we have often seen that police officers, their commanding officers and their unions and their union reps are often presenting or presenting an account that's most favorable to the officer. And those accounts aren't always true. And so as it relates to that, I think those are some of the biggest ways to do that. And particularly when you're reporting, if you're reporting on the ground to also look for a diversity of perspectives, particularly if you're looking for witnesses or just people who have knowledge about what's happening. But ultimately, I think it starts with an awareness and acknowledgement that this is happening. It happens frequently and it happens unconsciously many times and that it, there takes active work to undo what is happening from that. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 